Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is a passage that I read two Sundays ago before the benediction. I think before, at least to me, the enormity of our current situation became apparent or began to become apparent. If one is not careful, what one hears from the passage is do not worry, which may sound harsh, almost cruel, given our present circumstances. But we must take care to read the passage as it is written. It does not begin with the words do not worry. Rather, it begins with the word therefore which shows that Jesus is reaching a conclusion based on the preceding material, as in because of what I've just said, or since what I've just said is true, therefore this is what I'm telling you, do not worry. If we fail to read or understand the context of these verses, we may come away discouraged, frustrated, or even angry. We will respond with something like, well, that's easy for you to say, You don't know where I find myself at this present moment. So what precedes our passage? What is the context? What comes before our passage? Well, look, if you would, at verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what we hear in this passage that precedes our text today is that we are to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. We are to be generous. We are to be full of light and not selfish. We are to serve God, not money. And if, in fact, we obey what Jesus tells us in this passage, then, or therefore, We are not to worry. 
However, it may in fact be possible to go back even further with the word therefore to a larger context. So far in this section, Jesus has been minimizing the ultimate significance of material possessions. Things that can be destroyed by moths, that is by nature, by rust, time, or which can be stolen by other human beings. And we might say, well, yes, we'll, we'll accept that. But what about necessities? We're not talking about luxuries. We're not talking about hoarding. We're not talking about uh, accumulating great wealth. We're talking about eating and drinking, having shelter, having clothing. It may seem, and it does to me to some degree, that verses 19 to 24 do not seem, when Jesus speaks them, do not seem to be speaking directly to his listeners' situation, particularly the, the question of storing up treasure. From what we know, the majority of people in Galilee were not economically prosperous. Most of them were, or many of them, were day laborers. They got paid at the end of each day. Um, those who worked as farmers usually did not own their own land, but were tenant farmers. Uh, they worked land that was owned by the rich people who lived in Jerusalem. They were constantly in debt. So the idea of either serving God or money might have seemed strange, but I think we need to realize that the things we don't have can be as much of an idol as the things that we do have. One could say, if only I had X amount of money, or if only I had this possession, this house, whatever it is, um, it still becomes an idol even though you don't have it. In our passage today, however, Jesus is dealing directly with their situation. He doesn't speak of treasure, which you can have at your leisure, uh, clothes that you don't necessarily wear because you have so many you can't decide. Jesus speaks here of necessities, the basics in life. Your life, what you will eat or drink. Your body, what you will wear. Well, just as earthly possessions can become idols which force God out of the picture, in other words, he, he is minimized by this because we become so focused on these things. In the same way, earthly needs can become a source of worry. And again, force God, if not out of the picture, at least to the side, while we worry about these necessities. So whether it be luxuries or necessities, in both cases, they can in fact cause us to turn away from God and focus on them. The rabbi Hillel, famous Jewish rabbi, said the more possessions, the more care. But I think we could also argue that the fewer possessions, the more care. I would argue that no matter what one's economic state is, anxiety is always nearby. It is the natural human tendency to worry about money. It's shared by those who have a lot and those who don't have any at all. 
By the way, this, this should be a sure indication to us that money itself cannot get rid of worry. A commentator named Frederick Dale Bruner, was, uh, he wrote a two-volume commentary on the book of Matthew, was a missionary in the Philippines for 12 years. And he wrote this about this passage. As a missionary in the Philippines, I was convinced that this is a text that cannot be preached to the poor. It is cruel to tell the poor not to be anxious about getting enough to eat or wear. And I've often thought that this text should not be preached in the well-to-do West either, for it will only confirm the comfortable bourgeois prejudice. Let's face it, we who live in the West are affluent. We have a lot. And we have access to a lot, including transportation and even medical technology. But I think oftentimes because of bills, because of indebtedness, uh, Americans tend to think of themselves not as being affluent. But let's say for the sake of argument that we are affluent. Okay? Does this text apply to us? Does it touch us? Do we worry about whether or not we have enough to eat and drink or clothes to wear? It would seem that our worries with regard to food are not if we have enough to eat, but what will we eat? And will we prepare it ourselves or will we get it or have it delivered to the house? And our worries about clothes are not if we have clothes to wear, but what ensembles to put together? What clothes do we have that are clean? What temperature water should we use to do our laundry? And if we're not careful, this passage will leave us feeling rather smug because we don't worry about these things. We don't worry about food or drink or clothing. Living at this point in human history and living where we do geographically, economically, socially and intellectually, we face temptations, certain temptations, particularly because of technology, because of the belief, the assumption that all human problems lend themselves, at least in principle, to human calculated solutions. And even in the situation we find ourselves in now, there is a sense that we will defeat this virus. The belief is that as humans, we can solve every problem. We can grow more food. We can have more food delivered. We can produce more clothing. We can solve any problem that we face. And this gives us a false sense of reality. It's exemplified by what the authors of the first Whole Earth Catalog wrote. Now that we know we are gods, we might as well get good at it. What a false view of what it means to be human. But so does worry. The view that worry produces in us gives us a false view of what it means to be human. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? If we worry about such things, we act as though, we view humans as though we are only bodies that need to be fed, that need to be watered, that need to be clothed, 
unhoused. We begin to see human life as only something that is a mechanism that needs to be protected and lubricated and fueled. We need to ask ourselves, is physical well-being a worthy project to which we should devote our lives? Does human life have no more significance than this? In creation, there was harmony between dominion, that's obeying, and trust, believing. But when Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the world into darkness, in a fallen world, this has been replaced, dominion has been replaced by domination, and trust has been replaced by overdependence. And it is in this that Jesus, Jesus calls us away from this. This idea of storing up treasure, of being selfish, of thinking that I am self-sufficient, of serving money and living in a world of domination. And in our passage today, Jesus calls us to not worry about life, the sense of overdependence. In a redeemed society, the kingdom of heaven, there is to be trust and there is to be obedience. But how does Jesus call us away from this false view of what it means to be human to a proper and a correct view of what is intended? He does so in several ways. First of all, he gives us a negative command. Secondly, he appeals to creation. Thirdly, he appeals to our common sense. And finally, he gives us a positive command and a promise. First of all, the negative command. Three times in this passage, Jesus tells us, do not worry. In verse number 25, do not worry about your life. Verse number 31, so do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And then the final verse, verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. It should be enough for us, or so it would seem, that Jesus commands us not to worry. Even though times this may seem to be a cruel or even unrealistic command. But Jesus gives us this command, and then he gives us reasons for giving the command. This is the second part. He appeals to creation. He speaks of birds and lilies and grass. And this isn't a mere analogy, you know, a similarity, but it is an affinity. It, it is, there's a likeness that we should see in comparison. Jesus points to the natural order to make his point. We find this throughout scripture. Uh, Job in answering Zophar the Naamathite, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. This is referred to as natural revelation, as opposed to special revelation in which God speaks. But there is a problem which Jesus recognizes, and I think we should as well. It's not simply a matter of intellect or intelligence, looking at creation and somehow divining some type of principle or set of principles that are to guide our living. Because we are fallen, oftentimes we fail to read the message that is found in creation. It has to be explained to us, and that is what Jesus does in our passage. So Jesus doesn't simply say, look at the birds or see how the lilies of the field grow. 
He explains, your heavenly Father feeds the birds, and the heavenly Father clothes the grass of the field. The birds that fly in the sky and the heavens, and the grass that grows on the ground here on the earth. In other parts of scripture, grass and flowers are used to illustrate how short and how fragile life is. Some of these may be familiar to you. From Isaiah 40, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely all people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. In Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. And then even in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. But in the Gospels, in the message of Jesus, grass and flowers are used to make another point. Jesus takes something that is familiar to his listeners as he is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he twists it. And I think as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he catches his listeners off guard. Grass and flowers do point to the fact that life is brief, it is short, and it is fragile. But the point that Jesus makes is not that life is short or fragile, like grass or the lilies, but that God the Father lavishes his love on the grass and on the flowers and on the birds. Brief though their span is here on earth, God lavishes his love on them. How much more will he do this for those who are made in his image, for his children? So Jesus tells us, therefore, do not worry, because your heavenly Father cares for things that pass away so quickly, grass, lilies, birds. How much more will he lavish his love on you? Then Jesus appeals to common sense. He does this in verse number 27. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? The context has to do with food and clothing, which are designed to prolong life. You eat to sustain your life, to prolong your life. Common sense tells us, if you think about it rationally, that worrying is foolish. It accomplishes nothing, at least nothing positive in terms of extending our lives. We know this, but it doesn't always seem to get through. Finally, Jesus gives us a positive command and a promise. Verse number 33, a very familiar verse, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This verse is usually thought of as being the heart of the matter. If you could summarize the three chapters in Matthew that contain the Sermon on the Mount, into one word, it would be the word different. Jesus calls us to be different. 
beginning with the Beatitudes and all the way through the end of chapter 7. That's why verse number 33 begins with the word, but. It indicates that there's a contrast between us and the pagans. The pagans run after all these things. This is what they worry about. This is how they define their lives. This is what their lives are all about, accumulating, getting, having food, having clothing. But we as God's people are to be different. And how are we to be different? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. By the way, the idea of kingdom is something that showed up earlier in chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some have defined the kingdom of God as God's rule here and now. We might look around and, and question such a definition. But the reality is in our lives as individuals and as a congregation, God's rule is to be seen. And if that is the case, then we will come to see that life is more than food and drink, and the body is more than clothing. There's more to life, in part because there is more afterlife. This is not the whole story. The emphasis is on God's righteousness. And as a result, Jesus tells us all these things will be given to you as well. The economic needs that fill the horizon of our present world are not to fill the horizon of the followers of Jesus. Whatever we have, the goods that we have are to be received as gifts, not sought as acquisitions. This is gift from God, not this is something that I have acquired. Goods that we have are the byproduct, they are not the goals. One author has used the analogy that while the followers of Jesus are to seek God's kingdom in the front room of their lives, gifts are brought in through the back door. The front room of our life is not to be about acquiring or acquisition or worrying about food and drink and clothing. These are gifts from God that he graciously gives to us. God's righteousness, God's kingdom, these are the things that are to be found in the front rooms of our lives. Meanwhile, the Father has and will continue to deliver the very things for which the secular world spends its whole time working and shopping. We should not forget what is written. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This isn't the first time we've been told something like this. In the section on prayer, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In both passages, we are told not to be like pagans, and we are told that our Father knows what we need. The purpose of prayer is not to inform our Father, because he already knows. In prayer, we acknowledge that he is the source of all things. The purpose of our lives is not to get things which he already knows that we need.
you will notice that Jesus doesn't say, your heavenly Father knows that you don't really need these earthly things. No. To the contrast, the contrary, he knows that you need all these things. We need food, we need drink, we need clothing. And so the passage doesn't teach that we don't have to work. We're exempt from earning a living, that we can sit back and do nothing because our Heavenly Father will provide everything. Paul was clear about this in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. Jesus used birds as an example of the Father's providing. How does the Father feed the birds? Well, the birds, we could argue, feed themselves. Some eat seeds, some eat insects, some feast on carrion. But this is how God provides for them. The story is told by Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China in the 19th century, that on his first trip there by ship in 1853, a violent storm threatened to sink the ship he was on. Taylor, in his, well, in his thinking, thought it would be dishonoring to God for him to wear a life jacket. So he gave his away. Later, he came to see his mistake. He wrote this about that particular incident. The use of means ought not to lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. Jesus doesn't say, stay home and everything will be fine. There are things, in fact, that we are to do. Also, Jesus doesn't say that we don't have to worry about other people. or We don't have to deal with other people. We don't have to help other people. We, in fact, may be the means of providing food and drink and clothing for those who are in need. In the last parable of Jesus' ministry, which is recorded in Matthew 25, um, well, let me read it to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations shall be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we visit, or when did we see you sick, in prison and go to visit you. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So Jesus doesn't say, stay home, the Father will take care of everything. Neither does he say, you don't need to help other people. He also does not say that we will be exempt from experiencing trouble. 
the passage in Matthew 25 that I've just read. There are those who were sick, those who were in prison, those who were naked and needed to be clothed, those who were hungry and thirsty. And the king refers to them as these brothers of mine. We, in fact, may experience great difficulty. To be free from worry is not to be free from trouble. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. But they will fall. They will die. Sparrows don't live forever, and neither do we. But we should be assured that our Heavenly Father knows all this, that nothing happens apart from His consent. And yet there is unbelief in our hearts. There is a lack of trust. This is why before we get to our passage today, before the therefore, we must choose what is the right treasure. Treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. We must choose the true light and not the darkness. And we must choose to follow the true God and not money. Then, we can hear the words of Jesus. Therefore, do not worry. There is a basic principle or theme that runs throughout the sermon, well, in this passage and throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's so obvious, I think, that we miss it. And what is this theme? What is this principle? That God is our Father. It all begins with the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is when we recognize that apart from God we are poor, it's it's only then that we can, in fact, begin to understand and appreciate that God is our Father. By His grace we can become His children and that He cares for us. At the end of chapter 5, We are told that we are to be like our Heavenly Father. And in chapter 6, we are told more about our Heavenly Father, and that is that He cares for us and He provides for us. So why should we worry? Twice in our passage today, Jesus speaks of your Heavenly Father. In verse number 26, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your Heavenly Father feeds them you will notice that Jesus doesn't say their heavenly father because in truth he is not their father. He is the creator and sustainer, but he is not their father. He is our father, our heavenly father. And in verse number 32, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Again, not their heavenly father. He is not the heavenly father of the pagans, but of those who are his children. You see, pagans run after these things because they do not trust God as a father to take care of them. But God is our father. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows what we need. As we've seen, the passage doesn't tell us that believers are exempt from earning their own living, that believers are exempt from having a responsibility to help those in need or that believers are exempt from experiencing trouble. It does teach us that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He will give us what we need. 
Therefore, we are not to worry. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The key passage in our text today is verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We would point out that in this key verse, we find the pronoun his mentioned twice. It is his kingdom, his righteousness. They both belong to God the Father, and they are his to give. We're not told to seek our own righteousness or to seek a kingdom for ourselves. We've already been told not to accumulate things here on earth, but in heaven. Nor are we to think that somehow we can bring about, by our own efforts, God's kingdom. Rather, in line with the Lord's Prayer, it is to be our concern that the Heavenly Father bring His righteousness and His kingdom into the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It is his kingdom. We are to pray that God will vindicate his people, that he will get a name for himself now and at the end of history, that people know that he is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray together. Our Father, in very difficult and frightening times that we find ourselves, it is very easy to give in to worry, to give in to fear, anxiety. And indeed, what is happening is frightening. but we should not allow it to define us. We should instead remember that we are God's children. We have a heavenly Father, and he knows what we need. Our time here on earth will not go on forever. We're here for such a short time. And in our time here on earth, may we show what it means to be truly human, not being self-dependent, not seeking to accumulate things, but to acknowledge that you are the source of all things, that all that we have is a gift from you. By your grace during this time, may we not be afraid, may we not worry, May we, in some small measure, come to see more and more that you are in control and that you do love us. You who lavishes his love on grass and flowers and birds will certainly do that on his people, his children. We thank you for your love. 
We thank you for all that you have given us. May that be in the forefront of our thinking, even as we live through this dark time. May we remember to pray for one another, hold each other up, but pray for others, for our neighbors, for our city, our state, our nation, the world, that you would, by your hand, remove this deadly plague, but at the same time, open people's eyes to see who you are. We thank you for this day, the beginning of a new week. May your spirit and your grace be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.